This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. I knew I wanted a blood-drained boy in a glass vacuum receiver, and, and I knew I wanted a fight at the top of the monument. Hook is credited with designing the dome of St. Paul's. We have a first novel today, and a rather an accomplished first novel. The Bloodless Boy by Robert J. Lloyd is a historical novel, well, or is it a thriller, or is it both? Uh, Rob, thank you for joining us on Book Podcast. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you for inviting me. So, it's a historical thriller. Um, so, where are we and uh, when are we? Uh, we are in a snowy January. In fact, it starts on New Year's Day of 1678. Uh, so um, well into Charles II's reign. Um, and uh, various events have been compressed into a very busy January in, in my, my book. Um, probably events from, uh, I'd say, a, a year um, either side of that January have, have been uh, put together to, to make my tale of a, a boy found drained of his blood. And of course, we're in London. We'll come to the uh, characters and, and the setting in a minute. But let's start with this uh, bloodless boy, because it actually is. I mean, it's one of these things where you've put it on the table um, and it's exactly what you mean. What is that about? Tell me about the bloodless boy. Um, well, it's it's the central mystery of the of the book, so I'm I'm not going to explain it to your listeners. Too, oh no, too we don't. Much. No, that, no spoilers. That, that no spoilers. Spoil things, but um, uh, a boy is found on the on the bank of the Fleet River, um, and uh, a justice of peace, um, Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey, um, enlists the help of uh, Robert Hook and his assistant Harry Hunt. Um, it it the, the finding of this boy propels Hook and Harry, uh, especially Harry, um, into uh, into a whole load of uh, of trouble. Um, so they they uh, kind of try and guide Sir Edmund a little bit. He's he's very willing to believe that it's uh, some kind of Catholic malfeasance and uh, and perhaps a poor which is not of, implausible in those days, of course. Um, Sir Edmund's view, I, I suppose, represents the, uh, the the prevalent view at the time that Catholics were to be distrusted, and uh, um, they they got the blame for all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. Um, uh, anything that went wrong, you, you know, was was probably down to uh, the, the the Catholic plotting of some whereas, kind. Whereas Hook was um, uh, the voice of reason, of course, and certainly in your book, um, Sir Edmund is a real historical character and, and and most of your characters are real historical characters aren't they in in this book they they are um they, they, there's an interesting sort of moral um ethics i, I suppose about that Pl plenty of historical novels uh do use um real characters and and quite regularly uh intersperse them with with completely fictional characters um I'm, I'm I'm certainly not alone in doing that, but it does it does raise interesting uh, ethical considerations if you're if you're using well, people yeah, yes, even if even if they died, you know, over three hundred years ago. Uh, so so you, you kind of have an interesting relationship with your with your characters. It is um, quite exciting, though. I mean, when when we first meet Robert Hook, I I, I naturally remember him from my O level physics. Um, he was the inventor of Hooke's law, uh, something to do with springs, I think. 
and and where you've placed him, of course, is is where he was. Who was he really at, at this point in in London? Well, he he was um, a, a quite extraordinary character. Um, I, I've I've lived with with Robert Hooke since. Um, the mid 1990s, I, I did my MA thesis uh, about Robert Hooke. Uh, at this point, the Royal Society was really at a, a low ebb, and uh, my, my thesis argument was that Robert Hooke kept the Royal Society going uh, at, at, at the time. He was its curator of experiments, and, and mm. as such, and he is at the time of this book, of course. Yes, and uh, and and during the the course of the book, becomes its secretary. Um, for for one reason or another, um, he he held both roles for a while and, and complained bitterly of the of the overwork and uh, uh, eventually became the the secretary. But for years, from from 1663, in fact, he was the curator expected by the society to provide three or four considerable in quotes considerable experiments um, every week. Um, for the edification of the of the fellows, uh, and and he was a man more than qualified to uh, to to do that. Although it put tremendous strain and stress on him, uh, he he was given quarters in Gresham College, where the Royal Society was uh, was was based. Um, and so you know, every week I'd, I have a picture of Hook dragging equipment down from from his lodgings or or from the workshops. Uh, and presenting experiments which which covered a huge range of um, different uh, activities. And nowadays, scientists are, are much more niche in their in their pursuits. But he he covered uh, everything from astronomy, microscopy, paleontology, uh, meteorology. He, he was a quite extraordinary uh, man, and um, uh, somewhat eclipsed in in later years by by Isaac Newton. And and, and they had lots of um, Kind of clashes. Um, Newton was was bitter that uh, Hook uh, poured scorn on his microscope design, and uh, uh, and then they clashed over the inverse square law. And uh, Newton Hooke was a fairly bitter man, anyway. For for the greatest scientist of his time, he was pretty uh, he was pretty small minded in his in his quarrels. He, he was an interesting man to come up against, I think. And uh, Hook's reputation after his death. Um, when Newton became president of the Royal Society, uh, I think it's fair to say he uh, suffered. I think Newton um, uh, eclipsed him um, by by his obviously his his amazing achievement of the Principia, but but also some politics was was involved. Famously, um, a, a portrait of of Robert Hooke is supposed to have existed, um, and possibly apocryphal, but. Um, uh, Newton, Newton is supposed to have had the portrait destroyed. Uh, how true that well, is, I, I, now, I don't know. <laughs> Newton, Newton's not in your book, so we'll put him to one side. You were talking about Hooke's uh, equipment, and there's uh, he has a in in this book he has a, a vacuum pump, uh, which is a, an enormous uh, instrument from which obviously he can extract all the air, and it's a vacuum. Um, I associate that with Robert Boyle, uh, uh, you know, Boyle's law, again, O-level physics. Uh, mm -hmm. Did, did Hooke actually have one of these uh, vacuum pump devices? Uh, Boyle employed Hooke to build and, and design a vacuum pump for him. Hooke Hook was the, the person able to do so. 
uh, Boyle, Boyle wouldn't have been able to uh, to create um, that, that instrument. Uh, yep. Even Hooks was uh, wasn't dependable, um, but uh, but Hook Boyle was Hooks' patron, and d- during the sixteen uh, fifties in, into the sixteen sixties, up up until Boyle released him to become the curator of the the Royal Society, so so Hook it was who who built it and designed it, and together they they used it. Um, to to experiment in in respiration and uh, you know, d- different pressures of of air and uh, preservation and combustion. And how do you use this in the story? Well, um, perhaps slightly fancifully, um, I I believe uh, that the the actual air pump would just have been big enough to store the bloodless boy who who is uh, I, I describe him as being between two and four years old so um i i i I may have had to enlarge the air pump slightly (laughs) i'll give you uh, i'll give you a bit of license but uh, but he's he's used to um so sir edmund for for reasons which aren't at all clear to hook and harry at the start asks whether they have the means to preserve the boy um, and of course, you know, Hook, Hook does. It's the air pump down in the cellars of, of Gresham. Um, and so they, they store the boy to preserve him. The, the, the reason for that um, is, is made known through the course of Hook's and Harry's investigation. It was an enormously exciting time politically, wasn't it? it, it um, with with towering figures, we've we've talked about just one or two of them. But you've got Christopher Wren, you've got William Harvey, and all of these uh, uh, um, figures on in in sort of uh, at least sort of on the edges of the stage. Was it fun to spend? Uh, <laughs> I, must, I don't know how long it took you to write it, but was it fun to spend all that time in the seventeenth century? It, it's such a, a rich period. Like I say, I, I did my MA thesis in 1995. Um, I, I did an MA called the History of Ideas, which was, which was a good uh, a good course in in Newcastle. And um, and then in 2000, I, I decided to write a novel. And um, you know, it's a long time ago. I'm not quite sure why I did. I, I think as an intellectual exercise, but it, it sort of turned out being rather more than that. So I already had the the research that I, that I'd done for my MA. Um, Hook's diary is the um, book that's that really kind of sucked me into the the seventeenth century. Uh, various events are are described in in Hook's diary, um, and and I've you know I've, I've been stuck in that period of time ever since. It, it is a marvelously rich backdrop. You've got these these convulsions of uh, well, the Civil War, um, uh, which is just a few years earlier, and the the Great Fire of London. So how tricky is it to pitch the history? I mean, it turns out that I have a, a, a fair handle on the seventeenth century, slightly to my surprise. Um, <laughs> not all of your readers will be completely up to speed. Did that? Did, was that uh, something that you struggled with? It's. It's very. Uh, I mean, the, the, the original version that I, I pitched to literary agents was 150,000 words long. It, it then came down to 100,000, uh, and when Melville House took it on, um, they they wanted me to put stuff back in, which was great for the for the first time. I wasn't editing it for word count, but they wanted to um, 
a lot of stuff that I originally took out went back in, especially about Shaftesbury and Locke. Oh, let's um, do Shaftesbury and Locke. Uh, <laughs> obviously, we don't want to do spoilers on the plot, but we can talk about the characters. Shaftesbury is brilliant. The Earl of Shaftesbury, who's um, uh, quite sinister in in the book. And John Locke, oh, again, it takes it me, you know, back to uh, my early, early investigations into philosophy. John Locke is a, a legendary figure, and he's, he's Shaftesbury's... Uh, secretary yes which, which uh, he was at this time and i i think um, i i haven't come across it but I, I think there is a great thesis to be written about Locke's role um during the exclusion crisis when when he was shaftesbury's secretary and I, I suspect a lot of letter burning went on um i i think he did um help Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury, I, I should explain, um, was an opponent of the king at this time. Um, he, he had a history of sort of switching sides, but he, at this point, he was he was against the inheritance of um, Charles II's brother, the Duke of York, James he was Duke a Catholic, of York, yeah. taking over, because he, he was admittedly um, a Catholic. It's funny, I'm kind of hedging, hedging around, of course you <laughs> around are. elements but, of the plot. Well, then let's make it slightly less lofty. Um, he has an ailment, the Earl of Shaftesbury, in this, which I, I don't know if it's true, but John Locke has devised a, so a silver draining uh, tube from, is it his gallbladder that's poisoning him? Just above his liver, yeah, he had a, a separating cyst just, just mm. above his, uh, his liver. Yes, it, um, John Locke and Thomas Sydenham. Uh, were Shaftesbury's physicians, and um, uh, he, he was he was very dangerously ill. But they they um, discussed and planned the the operation. But it, it left Shaftesbury with a a, a silver pipe. Um, sticking into his liver basically and, and of course every time that we've we, we come across Shaftesbury as it were on stage in your book this is bothering him it hurts it's it's uncomfortable it's it's ruining his shirt it's a marvelous piece of characterization because it, it we must we, have been horrendous it must have been horrendous and yet we see him getting on with his uh, his mm. uh, uh, planning and his his uh, machinations that's right I mean he, he was still he able to lead lead the country party and the, the, you know the, the green ribbon as the the uh, anti anti um charles the second or, or really more anti the duke of york faction uh, he, he was still able to dominate parliament to the extent that charles the second prorogued parliament because um you know the, the voices against him were so strong this and and well this this brings me then to another uh, something i loved about the book it's marvelously evocative of well the, the miserable it's set around the new year um and and you simply never let up do you the weather is atrocious it's cold it's miserable um you, you're especially harry your your central character spend a lot of time cold wet and uncomfortable yeah um, it has a rough old time we, we we forget how 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 rough life was and it was the weather worth in the 17th century for instance was it always um, cold and miserable well we we had the the mini ice age that was a couple of you know, you know the, the famous sort of um uh image of the thames frozen over and the frost fairs um that that was around that was slightly later in time but um uh I, I i would have to check through robert hook's meteorological notes um which which, which sadly are in a different temperature scale but um uh, whether whether it was actually colder, I, I would I would guess so. Um, uh, 
But certainly they had less less recourse to, well, central heating and um, thermal underwear than we do. That, that's right, you know, and um, I, I, I've set scenes as well at night. Can you imagine um, going through 17th century London at, at night with a, you know, a, a link boy ahead of your, your hackney carriage lighting the way or, or just a single single lantern as you, as you go through the, the, the pitch blackness of, uh, of, of the, you know, the old part of London that hadn't been burned and the, the, the narrow old streets um it, it must have been um it must have been terrifying it must and, and and you're very you're very keen to evoke uh the the london of the 17th century uh, and 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 what the buildings are like and what what it's like to get through the streets and there's you've even got a, a scene uh, on uh, on the fish street um pillar the, the monument which i'm writing thinking that this is the monument to the great fire that's still there that's right. Designed by Robert Hooke, of course, um, and uh, although rubber stamped by Christopher Wren, it was it was Robert Hooke's design. He he overlooked the building of it, um, and together they they designed it as a, a huge scientific instrument, which which I find fascinating. Um, I, I was there the other day and hoped to, to go up it, but because of COVID, the uh, the, the monument was closed. Um, but the each each step in the monument is exactly six inches high, so they could do accurate measurements as they you know dropped balls down at the center of the uh, of the tube or, or did barometric um, measurements uh, but it, it was also a zenith telescope uh, quite extraordinary there was a lens up in the in the brass urn at the burning flames uh, and, a, and another lens down in the basement so they, they had a 200 foot long telescope um, which uh, sadly because of the the, the traffic um, didn't really work and uh, uh, ob- observations like that went off to the Royal Observatory which which again Hook uh, was a major part in designing so you know my, my London um, I, I tend to go for buildings that uh, that Hook at least had a part in um, historians of architecture have, have lots of fun trying to disentangle what what was Wren's and, and what was uh, what was Hook's but uh, uh, you know for example Hook is credited with designing the dome of St Paul's and uh, oh, is not, not he? I people, didn't know that I also thought that was Wren know that you know the the mathematics of it because it's quite an extraordinary structure if you look at the cross section uh, drawings of, of the dome that uh, that conical structure on on the inside Hook supposedly uh, came up with uh, with that and and you know they they helped one another um wren worked directly for the king but hook was uh, was working for the city so they they worked together uh, and, and were close colleagues and friends for for a very uh, uh, well a very long time um wren lived on after hook hook died in 1703 so you know they they had a 40-year um working working relationship you you have you use the, the monument, of course, as an incident in the book uh, where, and I don't think it gives anything away. You, you know, Harry is chased up in uh, by a would-be assassin. Um, it, it, this is based on a real event, though, is it? It it was um, the the Hook's diary um, has has various events that that I was I was intrigued by, and because of because of the very sketchy nature of the the way that he records things you, you know you, you can build them into into episodes so he he witnessed a, a pickpocket um fall from the balcony back back then it didn't have a high railing around it and certainly wasn't enclosed like it is now 
Um, so he, he witnessed the fall of a pickpocket and, and records that in his diary. And uh, um, I, I changed that to... Um, well, an, uh, an attempted well, Harry, murder, yeah. Yeah, Harry... Harry kind of explains it away as, as being a pickpocket, doesn't he? And then, and then the crowd um, mishear him and, uh, and it turns into papist. Um, so, so yeah, you, you know, the events like, uh, like that, it, it just, just, uh, I mean, that, that was one of the very early scenes. I, I kind of, I, I knew I wanted a blood drained boy in a, in a glass um, vacuum receiver. And, and I knew I wanted a fight at the top of the monument. <laughs> they, they, they were the first things to we go We should in, go, go back and reiterate, this is a thriller. There are murders, there are, uh, there's a suicide, there's a plot to kill the king. Oh, there's a cipher. There's a, oh, I love ciphers. I'm an idiot with it when it comes to I'm I'm downright thick. But I love <laughs> them in novels. So you've got a cipher that, that, that casts back to the Civil War. It, it, it all sort of is, is sort of seeping back into the present. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot going on. I I, I hope I never lost sight that um, it it's a thriller. We have to have a word about um, Harry, about Henry Hunt, who is really your central character. Uh, Hook is 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 almost is like a he's like a best friend central character, but um, Hunt um, uh, he's a real person as well. It's not it's not the Henry Hunt who was uh, the radical MP in the I think in the 18th century. It's a different, and he was a real person too. He was uh, uh, sometime he, he was. assistant to Hook. Um, and again, well, he he um, is an intriguing character um, in his own right. We we know so much about hook um that there's very little known about the real harry hunt um odd odd little facts such as he uh, he, he um uh, designed and built a telescope for sir jonas moore that there are some drawings of his he he, he was an artist um, as, as so many of these these people were hook hook was wren was um and his uh, drawings of a few of them survive a, a monstrous puppy and there's a, a uh, a fantastic painting of an eight and a half feet tall Swiss hussar that uh, um, he, he also um, illustrated a, a compendium of fish. There's various of his fish um, drawings and, and paintings that, that survive. But all, all we know from Hook's diary is that he came out of the country um, and, and became Hook's apprentice. He then, his, his career with the Royal Society, he, he was an operator which he is at the time of the book, and uh, he, he became the uh, keeper of the repository or, or the, um, the, the collection of the Royal Society, all their, all their knick-knacktry. Um, and uh, he, he was then a keeper of the library, but he, he stayed as Hook's friend up until Hook's death in 1703 and was, was one of the people to uh, sort his uh, body out um, and, uh, and sort his belongings out. Hook, intriguingly, um, when he died, his surveying activities um, made him a very rich man. He, he, he left about a million pounds Holy worth cow. of um, uh, coin. Well, indeed, coins and um, uh, silver and gold in, in a big chest that he had in, in his room. But Harry also um, bailed the Royal Society out. He, he lent, um, loaned them money at, at different um, times. Uh, and my my second book attempts an explanation as to uh, as to where all this money came from. There's there's nothing I've been able to find that uh, that explains it um, in real life. So I've just had to go. You, and invent you've anticipated it. my final question, haven't you? Are there going to be a, is there going to be a, a sequel? Are there more um, Harry Hunt, Robert Hook mysteries? 
Well, well, there are. Um, Melville House have signed me up for um, the, the first two books. So they, they've seen the self-published um, versions of, of both books. If there's time, I'd, I'd really like to go on to uh, the role that Christopher Fowler played, actually. Uh, in all this but um tell us tell us about chris fowler yes he's a friend of this site we've uh, we've talked to him several times yes i've I've just finished reading his uh, book of forgotten authors which which is a joy but um he he came across the two self-published uh uh, books that that i put out um and um not only wrote about them on his blog but but also was on miles jupp's uh, radio 2 program about unputdownable stories and and he um, he spoke about my books which was quite extraordinary and completely unexpected um and uh that from from that that was picked up by a, a bookseller in san francisco a man called martin Sorensen. Uh, who who gave it to Dennis Johnson, who who heads Melville House, and um, and so I got an email from someone called Dennis Johnson and something called Melville House saying they they wanted to to, to publish the the first two books, which um, you know has has considerably changed 2021 for me. And uh, as we go into 2022, the the second book will be out um, next November, uh, so that's all been um, revised and, uh, and and rewritten. Uh, and book three is uh, fully planned, and I'm I'm about sixty thousand words into into book three, so uh, e- each follows directly. Um, there's about a year gap between each of the stories, and the rest they say is historical thriller. <laughs> I, I will read them, Rob. I will read them with enormous <laughs> pleasure. Thank you very much for Excellent. talking to us. Thank you, Tim, and I, I'm I'm really pleased you uh, you enjoyed the book. It's. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 quite strange. It's out there now. It's got a fend for itself, and uh, it's it's been such an intense year. It's it's, it's um, uh, the kind of caravans rolled on a little bit, and and I I can concentrate on on writing book three. Well, which, let's uh, give it its chance. Uh, the book is The Bloodless Boy by Robert J. Lloyd. It's published by, as you say, by Melville House Press at eighteen ninety nine, and it's available now. You can get it uh, anywhere you like. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.